electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks very much, and welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, rally and risk. The market's mixed signals today, what that means for stocks and your money. We discussed that with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour, Jason Snipe. Shannon Sakosha, Josh Brown here with me post nine is Stephanie Link. Let's check the markets as we always do to kick things off today on this Tuesday. We are green. It's election day. You got the Dow good for better than 500. S&P's up one and a quarter. NASDAQ almost one and a half. And 414 is the uh, the 10 year note. So, Steph, I, I mentioned sort of these mixed signals. You got, you know, the dollar and, and yields are, are lower. You know, stocks may be getting a lift off that. Expectations are the midterms. Energy, healthcare leading. That can be played a little bit defensive. Tesla, below 200 bucks or, or right around there. That, that's a bit of sentiment on where risk is. Mm. And then this whole Bitcoin thing stuck around 20K, was below 20K <laughs> earlier. Another sort of sign of or assessment of where risk is. Well, I think we're starting to price in a split Congress, right, tonight. And that actually is good for the markets. As investors, we root for that because that's gridlock. And we don't want to have to worry about what the government is going to do. And maybe perhaps a split Congress means a little less fiscal stimulus, which means maybe a little less inflation. However, you is mentioned there actually going to How is there going to be any more fiscal stimulus anyway? Right. Well, well, who knows? But my point is a split Congress <laughs> gets you like... I think everybody knows. Well, but I, but I think we're... I think we're pricing in some of that to, to, to a degree. You mentioned the dollar, though. So there's mixed signals on the dollar. A strong, a weak dollar is very good for corporate multinational company earnings. That was the number one questions that were asked on conference calls during earnings season. That and input costs and pricing power and that kind of thing. On the other hand, a weak dollar gives fuel to the commodity price uh, inflation story. And in the last month, oil's up 21 percent, natural gas is up 42 percent. So there you go. You might have um, kind of these mixed signals on where inflation is going. And I think that right now we're giving the benefit of the doubt that maybe the Fed, the, the fiscal is less, inflation might be less, the Fed might be less. I don't buy it at all because I think of the job market and how hot and how tight, tight it is. Right. And we got across the board last week between and ADP and initial claims, even non-foreign payroll numbers, jobs are plentiful, right? And so that is the, the because of that, the Fed has got to go after inflation and they're going to remain hawkish for, for longer. And so I don't think the narrative changes. I like the rally okay. today. I like the rally in the last couple of days. But I, I also don't buy in that things have changed all that much. So then is that how you see it too, Josh, that the, you know, environment for risk, if you want to put it that way, isn't any better um, once we get past the midterms, and let's not forget the CPI as, as well on Thursday, that we're going to go just back to reality of what's, what's right in front of us. And that's going to guide where this market goes more than anything else. Yeah, so the, the gridlock rally and, and the people celebrating the gridlock thing, uh, the whole thing is a little bit of a clown show. Single variable analysis never wins. 
if you think about where, like, you know, they'll show you, like, oh, this is how the S&P 500 does during gridlock, blah, blah, blah. And the numbers that are heavily influencing that are the Clinton years, which is 1994. We had gridlock start into 2000. Um, and, and then uh, they'll look at, like, the Obama years, and they'll say, and they'll say like, uh, let's say 2010, when the Republicans took over. The reality is, first of all, Clinton and the Republican-controlled Congress got a lot done together. That's number one. Number two, inflation was sub-3% during the Clinton years and sub-2% during the Obama years. We're at 8%. We don't have that same backdrop. So I don't think that those stats are relevant. I don't think that that history is particularly meaningful. And I don't think people should buy or sell elements of a portfolio based on who they think is going to win the House or the Senate. So if that's like your whole reason for being bold up, yay, we get gridlock, I, 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 don't, I don't really know what to tell you. It's, it's just not, uh, in my view, a sensible way to go about investing. No, I mean, even if you if, if you don't go as granular as as Democrats, Republicans, who wins what and when um, there is evidence, Shannon, to suggest that simply a midterm election year and post that is good for stocks. Right. That's what City is talking about today. And they look back to data as of 1960, supporting the notion that the year following midterms and the third year of a presidential cycle has historically been a strong one for the S&P 500. I think we can just take it at, at that metric in and of itself. The economic backdrop is a little bit different this time, too. And I don't mean to refute the statistics because I've been touting those statistics just as much as anybody else on this committee. Um, but I think one of the things we need to think about is coming out of a midterm election tends to be a moratorium on the first two years of the incumbent president's term, which is why the incumbent party t generally doesn't fare as well within midterms. The other thing that happens, though, Scott, is that there usually is some programmatic spend from midterm candidates. So midterm candidates are running on certain platforms, certain programs, uh, and, and the appetite to what you and Steph were, were addressing earlier is really low for additional fiscal spending right now. And, and really, we should be very, very austere given what's happening from an inflation standpoint. So a little bit of that boost that we get in the third year of the presidential term is often from an economic boost as well in terms of that increase in fiscal spending. So not to say that his, history will not repeat itself in this particular year, but I also kind of look at it in terms of the story remains. What do we do about inflation. And I'm sorry, I know that everyone has a lot of questions about the Fed's ability to deliver lower inflation, but I certainly don't think that we want to put that on Congress to try to do that. So in this interim period, I'm looking ahead to Steph's point, things like earnings, things currency impact, you know, the potential lack of tax changes next year. Those actually are going to fall right into the bottom line. And so, you know, whether or not we come out in the next couple of days and we have a split Congress, which is, is likely from a, a polling perspective and some structural advantages that the Republicans have in the House. But I think we just need to look at where are we in the economy, what the Fed is going to be doing, because, again, deriving any sort of direction next year from Washington, um, I think it's sort of um, it's a little bit of a pipe dream in terms of where we can actually see an impact to the markets next year. You know, Jason, so I want to get back to where we started, these, these mixed signals, if you want to, want to call it that, the, the things that are good for stocks, theoretically, and then those that may paint a, a picture of a more defensive tone in the market, which could cap where this rally goes from here. That's where we started. 
the fact that the dollar is lower, yields are lower, that is at least somewhat supportive of where stocks can go. However, when you, when you sort of read below the surface, you, you, you do have Tesla, which has been a good indication of where risk is over the, over the course of the last few years. Um, it's at a 52-week low. Bitcoin, as I said, has been a good indicator of where risk sentiment is. Um, can't get any traction whatsoever. What is the significance of, of all of that to where you think stocks can go from here? Forget the midterms, which I want to move beyond. Yeah, Scott, I think there, there's a number of things, obviously, that you just mentioned. But if I if I just pick on, you know, Tesla as a, as a kind of a proxy for growth sentiment, you know, I would I would push back with you on that one. One, because, you know, uh, there he might have to Elon might have to raise some liquidity for, you know, additional moves that he needs to make at Twitter. So I, I think that's what's weighing and putting pressure on the stock here um, as it relates to kind of where stocks go towards the end of the year. I think my, my real focus is obviously on CPI on Thursday. You know, what 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 doesn't what is the re going to look like? I think housing uh, shelter costs will be continue to be the theme um, and, and will will weigh on will weigh on the number. And, you know, if we get a seven handle, you know, high seven again, inflation very stubbornly high. Right. And we we've heard from Fed. We'll hear from a lot of get a lot of Fed comment commentary this week, you know, in regards to what what their outlook is and what they see going forward. But we we heard from the from the Fed already and, and what their decision was and, and what policy will be going forward, um, which will obviously continue, as Shannon mentioned, look to fight inflation rates higher for longer. Even if they even if they pull back in Q1 of next year, they're still going to be higher for longer, which is going to be a headwind to stock. So it, it makes a lot of sense for me to see energy, healthcare, defensive areas of the markets, you know, faring well in this environment and, you know, focusing on earnings going forward. And we've seen the revisions come in. Let's see what that looks like going into next year. But, you know, overall, I think it just maintaining a defensive tone um, into the end year and going into next year, I think, uh, is, is the appropriate one here. But Scott, like the, the, the energy sector, I don't view that as defensive. And that's not, that sector is up 64%. I mean, financials are up 13%. They're not defensive either, right? Um, and, and so, I, I don't know. I mean, even healthcare, there are parts that are a little more cyclical than others, but that's good that they're doing well. Um, but I would view those as just kind of delivering on earnings and delivering better than expected free cash flows and that sort of thing. And, and investors are looking to reward those companies and hey, pay up for hey. those companies. By the way, energy, the sector's trading it like nine times earnings, right? So, and you get yield. Um, and so anyway, my point being is I don't know if what's working or what's outperforming is really defensive. I don't know that they're se. classic sort of risk on areas of, of the market though, relative to some others. I think mm -hmm. that maybe is, is where we're going. Uh, you know, for that, for that. I think energy is cyclical and industrials are beating technology for sure by 20, 20%, well, 30%. I mean, Josh, we, we know obviously that of late value has yeah. become more favored over growth. The, the question is, as some have raised over the last few days, as to whether it's time to fade the cyclical trade in and of itself. I mean, if you think we're going into a, a more you know, serious economic downturn than, than we're in now. And this is really teeing up Steph for a move that she made, which I'll get to in a second. <laughs> Why would you want to increase your exposure to areas that are more susceptible to an economic decline? Like 
Industrials, financials, and some other places that have been rallying. Scott, the one thing that we haven't mentioned, but probably the most important thing that everyone should be following is the dollar. The U.S. dollar index is still up 15% year to date. But listen, it's down 4% since the high in September. It's not a magical coincidence that, that um, the market bottoms with the dollar topping. Like, if, if you don't understand that dynamic by now, turn this of course, off. We said it at the very HGTV. top of the show, right? It's no, right. We so, said at the top of so, the show, it's no surprise that the dollar's but that's weaker the whole over the last story. couple of days but, and stocks are up. But that's all. But that's all. It's not cyclicals versus value. Throw it out. 87% of S&P 500 components are green today. Throw it out. That's not what matters. The gigantic mega cap stocks are deflating. The money is not coming out and sitting in a money market fund. The money is going elsewhere. We know that's happened. Let's take a look at Tesla. Tesla hit a new 52-week low today. That is still a gigantic stock. Tesla is underperforming the Qs year to date. It's down 45%. The Qs are now down only, only 31%. You have to understand, Tesla hitting a low like that from, from October 1st, the start of the, the fourth quarter through today, this stock is down 27%. The Qs are only down 2%. So what's happening is that a lot of money that's been parked in these massive stocks, Amazon, Alphabet, all of these names are hitting 52-week lows. It's not that the fundamentals are shifting so quickly. It's that the trade has moved. But what the benefit of that is breadth gets better. The, the, the highs list can start to expand. The 90-day highs list can start to expand. And you're seeing performance in energy and in materials. Industrials look great. So that is actually a good thing. It might be frustrating for people who are watching the pure index, but for investors with stocks, it's not frustrating. It's actually very healthy. And the Look, most important determinant of whether or not that continues is if we can keep a lid on the dollar index. That's it. That's all that matters. It's a whole game. You, you point out, you know, the fact of the Teslas and its mega caps. And Jason, um, I'll, I'll go to you for that. I think it's emblematic of kind of where we are right now, that the market doesn't necessarily. We used to ask this question all the time. Can the market go up without those stocks, right? This is maybe evidence, at know. least in the, in the near term. Well, <laughs> to my, my point, though, Jason, is that, okay, the market doesn't need those stocks to go up, but it can't do great without them. Part of the performance of the stock market is going to be capped if those stocks don't perform well. Can it go up? Yeah. Can it do great? I don't think so. What do you think? So, I mean, obviously, mega cap tech represents, you know, 25% of the S&P. So that, that's a huge weighting. And, and of course, that's going to have a, you know, a major impact on, on the performance of the stock market. But, you know, to Josh's point, yes, I mean, old economy has done well. And we've seen uh, that market can, can move uh, positively without mega cap tech playing uh, in the game with them in, in terms of the upswing. So, for me, I, I do believe that old parts of the economy, whether it's industrials or other places, um, you know, areas that have a lot of strong free cash flow, strong balance sheets, earnings power, you know, parts of the economy that have fared well that I think could continue to do well and I think could pull the market, right? As we see energy now, 5% of the S&P, again, very small uh, portion of, of the index, but is growing and, and the earnings power is there. So, you know, that's, that's just my read on it.
I mean, do we really believe, Steph, that, that we can have a sustainable rally without the Apples, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Alphabets, the Teslas doing well? Well, all those groups, both groups, Com services and tech is 35% of S&P 500 earnings. So, excuse me, uh, waiting. So, yeah, it's important. We want them to do well. I think they're going to struggle, though, and especially as rates continue to remain high. Right? We talked about long-duration assets, and you don't want to be there. Can the market work? Well, you're going to have to have every other sector really be on fire. Not work. I mean, yes, the market can work, but okay. can but we have a sustainable rally? without it. I think we can. I mean, the long-term average of the S&P 500 over the historical proportions is really about 7%. 7% is not bad. I mean, we got used to 28% the last three years in the, in the market. That's not normal. So then we're giving back this year. Now we're down. I think we're discounting a lot of bad news. And to your point on industrials, we're discounting a lot of bad news. And if there's an industry that has pricing power, they've got it. They benefit from inflation. Yeah, but see, you bought, this tees up the move that you made. Yeah which is Caterpillar, right? Yeah. Steph just bought Caterpillar. And, and I'm wondering why now is a good time to buy anything like Caterpillar in the current environment, which is likely to be a different economic environment six months from I now. I think we're already discounting recession right now in the market, in the overall market. This company, the fundamentals are actually very strong. I mentioned pricing power. They have it in spades. Their margins have upside of 400 to 500 basis points from here just from pricing alone. You've had underinvestment in equipment for the last three and a half years. By the way, the same story for Deere, John Deere, same thing, underinvestment. That's a really big deal. Um, and so I, I think when you look at the backlogs, it's very impressive. Could those backlogs shrink if we have a recession? Of course they can. But I don't think at this multiple with earnings power of something like 18 to $20 a share. What's a multiple? 16. I don't think that's bad with 2% yield. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's cheap, really, really cheap. But I do think that the earnings power I have more confidence in because they finally put the pricing stuff in play last year and it's starting to help them now. So let's, let's assess it, um, Shan. That's kind of what we do. With, with the committee, right? Someone has an idea and then we, we kick it around. Would you buy Caterpillar today? Yeah, I, I don't think this is I, I don't think this is a bad trade. We don't own Caterpillar, just to be very clear. Um, but I do think that there are some there's there's still some tailwind for the industrials trade. I think the important point is here is that we are entering into an environment where there is going to be less globalization um, and we're going to need technology. And so the way I look at this in terms of every single sector, every single industry. Are they able to properly control their supply chain? Are they able to properly control their inventory? And is the product that they are producing in their particular sector and industry going to make them more efficient? And I think that Steph makes an excellent point. There has been no CapEx in the 10 years coming into the pandemic, whether we're talking about energy infrastructure, where we're talking about heavy equipment, where we're talking about infrastructure, there has been nothing. And so I do think that we are entering into a secular phase where we are going to have to replace and, and renew our equipment force globally because we are not, we do need to reinvest from a productivity perspective. So I like the trade here. Um, I think it's less about sort of the industrial sector, honestly, for me. I think it's more about what we need to be spending on in order to create productivity and efficiency in a global in a, an environment that's moving away from globalization and therefore into higher costs at the for the uh, for the producers. Well, look, I, let's keep it real. I mean, Josh, give me a three-year chart. Give me give, give me a three-year chart. Would you, of this buy, real quick. would you buy if I told you that a, a recession was a high 
a high probability in the next 12 months. Would you buy an industrial stock no. today? No. First of all, recession is guaranteed overseas and Caterpillar is doing business internationally. Let's start there. The saving grace is that a lot of the reason for this global recession is the CapEx lack of spending that we've had. And so it might not affect Caterpillar the way previous traditional recessions have. And actually, it may play to Caterpillar's strengths. I like the idea as an investment. I don't love the timing. And uh, if you throw up a three-year chart, and I can't see, um, but you can clearly see this pattern. All right, higher, listen, lower highs, right? Uh, Four successive peaks at lower prices and lower lows. It is clearly in a downtrend dating back from May of 2021 when it made its high. It doesn't mean things can't change. That's the current trend. The other problem is, and I know we can't show RSI or relative strength on the screen here. Take my word for it. RSI is 78. That's off the charts. That's an overbought stock. So here's what I would say. You got a huge gap coincided with a break above the 200-day moving average. Healthy action. I would want to see that overbought condition worked off a little bit. I would like to even see a retest, and hopefully the stock doesn't get back into that gap. So 212, 215, that area from the top of that gap. Let's see what happens when the stock retraces. If the buyers come in and keep it here, I'm a little bit more comfortable buying it. But again, you've still got this declining uh, trend, and that could take a little bit of time to, to work itself out. The other thing I, I give would you just, the last word. I would just simply mention, I think the energy component is very underappreciated. It's 35 percent of total revenue. It's, I think, going to 45 percent of total revenue. It used to be 50 percent way back in the day. So this is not just a construction mining equi- equipment company. And I like, as you know, energy. And I am 10 percent of my portfolio is energy. That's double the benchmark. So I, if I like energy, this is very consistent with that as well. And I think this company has run so much differently than in the past. But what, so, do, you, what do you make, though? of Josh's critique of the timing. Well, I mean... I wouldn't argue the fundamentals with Steph. She's right. So. I, I, I'm, I started off with a small position, and if it goes down, I actually will be happy, and I'll buy it lower. That's fine with me. Okay. Um, that's what we do. I'm glad we had the debate. All right, check out shares of Disney. They're higher ahead of earnings in overtime this afternoon. There you go, higher by about 1% or so. Get you ready for that coming up next. We're back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. 
Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, Disney earnings are on deck with the results out uh, in overtime later today. The stock coming off its best month in nearly two years, still looking at its worst yearly performance since the 70s. Uh, So let's kick this around. Shannon, you own it. Uh, It's a significant quarter, right? It's the last report before they raise prices for streaming. It's also the last before it launches the ad-supported tier, which seems to be the rage of the day. Um, So what's your outlook here, given what we just said about these metrics that are somewhat conflicting about the stock's performance? It's all. It's going to be all about the guidance in terms of the ad-supported tiers. I mean, the problem here has been that when Disney Plus was originally uh, launched, the expectation was that the content spend would be really low for a really long time because they had such an exhaustive library. And what they've realized is that you actually do have to spend on content, particularly to broaden out that audience. Um, and so the questions now are around margin and can they recoup or improve that margin based on these ad-supported tiers? There's a problem there, though, Scott. Or a question, really. Um, just think about what advertising has been like for other companies who've reported this year. And so being able to focus on not only ad spend at ESPN, but also now on this additional ad tier is going to create a lot of questions in terms of the delivery of this improved margin next year. Parks are super strong, remain super strong. Um, tons of cash flow that's able to support the DTC streaming effort. But the bottom line is that those are not recession proof. Um, and so if we do enter into a, a deep and sustained recession late next year, you know, that's going to be a problem for Disney in terms of the trade-off between content spend, margin, and obviously the free cash flow that they may or may not have to the extent they have it today. So Jason Snipe, you own Netflix. Um, what, what do you think about Disney going into uh, the, the quarter here, right? We, we've, we've heard from a lot of streamers. Uh, we know what the issues are. And you could say, oh, well, the stock is has some momentum going into the quarter. Best month since December of 20. I could say, well, I mean, obviously the Dow's done well. So that's why that stock is up. Or is the more significant number, the stock's on pace for its worst year since 74. That sort of tells the whole story about where we are. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's a difficult story for me here. And I think Shannon makes a great point on just the content spend and what they've had to do there. Uh, yeah, it's the last quarter that they're reporting prior to the, the ad supported tier that they're going to add. I think I think the sub additions will probably be decent, you know, but it's it's not a pure play. And if we're going into a slowing economy and content and, you know, park spend and all that uh, starts to slow down. I don't I don't really love it here. And that's that's why I prefer Netflix you know, over it as a, just a pure play and what they're doing um, in terms of monetizing, really focusing on revenue. So that's, that's just my read on the streaming business. It's a fragmented industry. It's tough um, uh, to grow here, but, but Netflix is my pick here. Yours is too. Scott, um, can I just Josh, add to right? that? Um, yeah, go ahead, Shan. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so, uh, you know, uh, the, the flip side of my argument, which was sort of against the stock or potential risks, is that I do think that parks are much more recession proof than we assume that they are. The free cash flow has been significant. There's t- there's still ability for Disney to raise, raise prices there. And I think that the ad spend will will hold up better than what we've seen um, for some of the, the social media stocks, for instance. OK, so, Josh, you can take both of the, the comments into consideration both from from Shannon and and Jason you're a Netflix guy too how should we be thinking about this heading into the number and overtime 
Um, Netflix is clearly more recession resistant than Disney. I don't even know how we could possibly debate that. We're talking about the difference in a platform that costs somewhere between $6.99 ad supported and uh, $20 premium versus an experience that costs thousands of dollars. I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's a ridiculous argument. I like Disney as a long-term investment. I think though, we're in this once in a lifetime boom in travel. Disney is firing on all cylinders, operating full capacity almost all over the world other than COVID lockdowns in, in, in Asia. Um, and this is the best the stock can do. What happens next year when we're up against these comps, the, the post lockup, uh, the post lockdown travel boom comps? Are they gonna do better next year? There's almost no chance. So Disney to me looks like a tougher name in the intermediate term than Netflix. And that's why I prefer NFLX right now. Okay, up next, we're gonna go under the radar on the stealth stock movers. You might be missing the names and the trades are next. Plus we'll have more on that whole Binance FTX situation, what it means to how you might invest in crypto in the future. We've got that covered too. We're back after this. $60 billion worth of electronics are discarded annually, according to research from Barclays. Discarded e-waste can contain valuable materials like circuit boards, light ferrous metals, and batteries, which can be reused in the transition to a low-carbon economy. Apple, Rockwell Automation, and Best Buy are three firms with e-waste initiatives. That's your ESG Fest fact of the day. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Christina Partzinebles. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. U.S. cybersecurity officials said this morning that they currently see no specific or credible threat to election infrastructure. They said they do expect to see low-level issues and possible disinformation efforts from outside actors, but nothing that will directly affect the ability to cast a ballot. Still, U.S. law enforcement agencies say they are standing by to deal with any issues. There are reports, though, of possible voter harassment and intimidation at polls in two key states. In North Carolina, officials say there have been isolated incidences of voters being filmed and even some poll workers being harassed. In Arizona, 18 cases of alleged voter intimidation have been referred to local and federal law enforcement agencies for review since the start of early voting back on October 12th. And election officials across the country are reminding people to be patient while votes are being counted. In a joint statement, groups that represent the country's secretaries of state and election directors said it could take days to tabulate the millions of ballots and they ask voters to allow them to do their jobs. Scott, back with you. All right, Christina, thank you. That's Christina Partsinovolos. Well, news breaking in the last hour in the crypto world, as many of you know by now, Binance striking a deal to buy a unit of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX. Kate Rooney joins us now from San Francisco. So I'd like to try and, you know, figure out how we got here 
And, and what the real takeaway is for investors, when I'm looking at a tweet from Sam Bankman-Fried, Kate, just yesterday where it says, a competitor is trying to go after us with false rumors, FTX is fine, assets are fine. Now today, what should yeah, we take that, away from this? That doesn't give investors a lot of confidence, uh, the idea that he was really pushing back so hard on the idea that everything was fine, it was not a liquidity issue. Flash forward to this morning, Binance is looking to buy FTX.com, so that's the international side of Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto empire, separate from FTX US. The deal hasn't closed, and Binance's CEO is saying they still need to do some due diligence. He says this was sparked by a liquidity crunch, though, at FTX, which you could also argue in part was sparked by the Binance CEO and his recent tweets and some of what we saw play out over the weekend. Binance was also an early investor in FTX, but sold its equity stake in FTX's last round, and as part of that payout, it got a cryptocurrency called FTT. So that is created and really inextricably tied to FTX. Cheng Feng Zhao, the founder and CEO of Binance, he also is known as CZ, tweeting that the company was divesting all of its holdings in that cryptocurrency. It came right after another report from Coindesk called into question Alameda Research's balance sheet. If you know that name, it's a quant firm founded by Sam Bankman-Fried, has close ties to FTX. The CEOs fought about this all weekend over Twitter, and uh, SPF really, like you said, Scott, responded to that, that tweet saying a competitor is trying to go after us. He called it false rumors, said FTX is fine. Assets are fine. A few big takeaways, though. One, this really creates a giant international crypto exchange, so potential monopoly there. The other, crypto's white knight, as some were calling him, appears to now be on the other side of a bailout. FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried had really uh, played this role as an industry backdrop. They came in bailing out a lot of other companies, Voyager, BlockFi, another one. Unclear if some of those deals, which have not technically closed, will still go through. So that's still a big question going forward. And uh, we'll see, Scott, but a lot of moving parts to this. This feels like, I don't know, you know it's so much better than I do, like such a regulatory light industry. Does any of this need regulatory approval at all? And I'm, I'm just trying to get my arms around how one of the biggest crypto exchanges could be met with a liquidity crunch. So it calls into question the regulatory side. Sam Bankman-Fried, here we are the day of the midterms. He's one of the biggest political donors. If you look at um, just overall, he has spent a lot of money and time in Washington lobbying lawmakers. It calls into question his credibility and what happens in D.C. He's really got himself a seat at the table now and has become sort of the, the what some people were saying, the credible face of crypto. He was at the table so that's one thing people I'm talking to in the industry this morning worry about. Look, what does this do uh, to regulation? It also often sparks regulation when you look at some of these issues and the transparency between the companies like FTX and their counterparties, Alameda. That's one big question is how were those companies interacting and uh, what was the issue with those counterparties, parties, if anything? And then on the global stage, it's not clear that this would need anything like CFIUS approval, but you see what's happened with ByteDance and TikTok. You know, Binance is not technically based in China at this point, but it was founded in China. It has a lot of ties and is really operating overseas. So unclear what U.S. regulators could do, if anything, because a lot of these assets are offshore and FTX.com is an international business. But I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on this deal and creating what is now combining the two biggest global crypto exchanges in a lot of uh, jurisdictions and places outside of the U.S., the regulatory structure looks completely different. So 
Some have described it as the Wild West. It depends on what jurisdiction you're in, but you're now combining two of the global, biggest global crypto exchanges. This raises so, so many different issues. Kate, thank you. That's Kate Rooney trying to make some sense of um, all this news, which, Josh, I'm, I'm sure you have an opinion about, too. I, I just go back to the SBF tweet. You know, FTX is fine. Assets are fine. And then we find ourselves with this news today of, um, I guess I'll use the word alleged liquidity crunch. What do you make of this whole thing? Um, crypto is like this massive multiplayer online role-playing game where the object is to bet on the con man um, who is most reputable, like relative to all of the other con men. And what really makes it tough is that we're not yet at the place where securities regulators um, have like the, the same level of oversight that they have over deposit institutions, for example, or uh, traditional securities exchanges. And it's coming. And, you know, we don't know the exact structure, but like that's all definitely going to happen. And every week there's more reason for the rest of us who are trying to live in this economy um, to say, yes, let's have some oversight because the boy wonders, the, the international men of mystery, et cetera, they just they can't they can't police themselves. Nobody really can. So here's a situation where Coindesk did a, a Coindesk is a journalism outfit. And they did a piece saying that if you actually look at Alameda's assets, which they claim are $14.6 billion worth, a lot of those assets are held in like their own stable coin, something called FTT. I think that was probably a wake up call to a lot of people who don't really know the plumbing of crypto or understand all of these related party issues. And that was enough. That thread being tugged on was enough to generate this Twitter back and forth. Um, that starts off as a rivalry and then culminates in a rescue. Um, it's, it's crazy to watch this happen in real time on social media. I think people are like, well, why is Bitcoin rallying? Bitcoin's rallying because it's not somebody's stablecoin. And it doesn't really rely to the same extent as, uh, as some of these other coins on some centralized entity. And so if you're like a Bitcoin maxi or if you're a crypto bull in general, you're probably looking at the activity today and you're saying, yes, actually, this is healthy for the ecosystem. Every other non-crypto normie is looking at this like, why the hell are we permitting this still in 2022? Well, but, uh, but I'm thinking this of has like, gone what, on long uh, enough. Those are, that's fine. Th those are those two sides. But, but for, the, for the individual investor, does this hurt the, the credibility no, of crypto as a, as a legitimate if you want to use that word asset class, that sounds too glib to say, no, ignore it. I'm sorry, but it does. They can, no, they can ignore it because there have been blowups in crypto since day one. This is, this is a, a feature, not a bug. Um, and and what, the, what the true believers in cryptocurrency would say is, look, they keep trying to erect these centralized businesses and every one of them fails. The one thing that keeps going is the blockchain. So like you can be bullish on crypto and be bearish on Sam Bankman-Fried, for example, or Voyager, or Celsius, or 10 years ago, Mt. Gox, which at that time was the FTX of the crypto industry. So it's not inconsistent to say, I'm bullish on blockchain and decentralization, I'm bearish on all of these exchanges and all of these stable coins issued by uh, quasi-corporations. You can be both, and I think most of the thoughtful people that uh, are in this space probably feel the way that I've just laid out.
Shan, um, how do you feel about this as it relates to putting, you know, clients' money into crypto, knowing that these blow-ups or at least incidents uh, are possible? Are possible in what I said was a very regulatory right, a light world. Um, it's 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 regulatory light, and it's incredibly challenging, Scott, to walk through what the rationale would be for price movement. Um, you know, based on these particular incidences. And again, this is you know this is different from you know what we would anticipate in the financial markets, but it's not that dissimilar. I mean, if you think about finance versus decentralized finance, I mean, how how much of an uproar was it a few weeks ago when Credit Suisse came out and made a similar comment about the, the sanctity of their balance sheet, right? But I think that the problem is here is that we don't know, you know, who is that, who's going to step in and be looking at and, and corroborating the reports that we're hearing from these entities. And so I do think it's a really challenging space to be in. I don't disagree with with Josh in any way, shape, or form. You can be incredibly bullish about the opportunity in blockchain, whether it's in healthcare, education, defense. There are so many different applications from a blockchain perspective. But in terms of getting the system right, I think it's going to be really hard for investors to gain credibility. Just as they're starting to get momentum, something like this occurs, occurs and really has the entire ecosystem take a step back to, well, what are we actually invested in? And can I count on the fact that my assets are going to be safe and that I can have access to them? I mean, we had run, yeah. run, runs on banks here in the U.S. earlier in the uh, 20th century, right? And look at all of the regulation that came out of that. All right, we'll take a quick break. We do have more trades still ahead. We're back in just two minutes. All right, welcome back. Under the radar moves over the last month, what we're calling some stealthy moves in stocks, not getting a lot of chatter. Jason Snipe, your Shopify is up 20% in a month. Yeah, it, it is. And I think you've got you to be careful with the price of sales name. This is a jump on the rev. Uh, well, on the earnings, there was a rev beat. Their operating expenses are de- decelerating rapidly. So, you know, be careful here. But I, but I think they built a nice sustainable base through the pandemic, and I think it could continue to grow. Shan, Mondelez up 17% in a month. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, a little bit of a defensive trade here from a Staples perspective. But, um, you know, in terms of global footprint and branding, Mondelez clearly has is, is continued to expand that. Um, and I think that there is, again, still a little bit of interest in maintaining some defensive exposure as we move into uh, 2023. You want to take Corteva up 11%? Yes, yes, up 41% for the year, too. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It, and they had a great quarter <laughs> this, uh, this past week, right? I mean, seed and corn uh, protection is really doing quite quite well, growing double digits. Margins are going higher. They're doing all the right things. Um, it's not a cheap stock anymore, though, but I like it. Yeah. I do like the ag cycle very much. Josh, quick to you. A.O. Smith, 15% last month. I mean, the stock had been the stock had been crushed, so it's not surprising that it's had that big of a bounce. It's down big from its high, which was January with the rest of the market. Um, but it's paying a good yield. They've been paying a dividend yield since uh, just after the Civil War. This is one of those stocks that I think you don't really worry about so much day to day. Seventy percent of their business is replacement cycle for hot water boilers in homes and businesses. It's never going away. All right, we got Santoli's midday word. Coming up next. All 
All right, we're back. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli sitting here on the set with us at Post 9. The uh, midterms march higher continues. Yes. What are your thoughts here? I think that's in the air. It's in everybody's uh, ears. And uh, nobody really wants to necessarily feel underexposed, not just because of the seasonal factors, but when you have the dollar uh, giving you some relief, Treasury volatility has really come in a fair bit. That's been coinciding with rallies all year. So there's this window where it seems like things are working uh, in favor of just let's not get too negative, um, especially when you're considering things like the soft landing scenario, at least among some people out there, is not yet been foreclosed upon. God, I feel like it's almost picked up in some respects of late. Couple of weeks, people are yeah. sort of opening their their minds to the fact that you could actually have a soft landing. Yes. And again, this is going to, I think the pendulum will swing back and forth a a little bit because we're not going to have a clinching argument on that for a while. The other thing is, though, the mega caps got so oversold and now they're bouncing. And we still have time and and room to see whether that's just a bounce. But for now, definitely helping the index. I'll see you in a few hours for your last word. Got Disney coming up, too. So we got a lot to talk about later on with Mike Santoli. We'll do final trades right here next. All right, overtime this afternoon, a few hours from now. It's going to be big because we have Disney earnings. It's going to be all about that. Joe Terranova's with me. Mark Newton, the Fundstrat technician on where the market is likely to go from here. You got midterms, obviously, CPI, so much more. Courtney Garcia with me as well. I hope to see all of you in just a few hours' time right here, Post 9, New York Stock Exchange. Final trade time. Josh Brown, you're first. Well, I want to highlight what's going on in shares of Lyft today because that stock is off 21% after an earnings disappointment. They said they only grew active riders by 7%. Uber grew theirs by 22%. And you're seeing Uber, which is my final trade, higher on that news. You almost never see these two trade apart from each other after reporting earnings. I think it's becoming apparent Uber is becoming like the one company that's going to dominate this space, similar to what Google eventually was able to do in search. And uh, that has me feeling very bullish about UBER. Okay, uh, good stuff. Shan, what do you got? Stryker, um, seeing a still backlog of knee and hip procedures from COVID, and that is going to continue to drive revenues for next year. Okay, Jay Snipe. Pioneer, leading EMP player, uh, trading at nine times earning. I like it here. All right, finally, Stephanie Link. IBM, they beat, they raised, numbers are going higher. Stock is very cheap at 15 times with a 4.7 yield. That was on my list, too, of those stealth the movers. Stealth names. Yeah, all right. Uh, great to have you here. I'll see all of you in overtime. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.